0: Okay, here we go. Standby. Three,
2: two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea.
3: The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof.
2: Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together
3: for a more rational world take the risk of thinking for yourself much more happiness truth beauty and wisdom will come to you that way
2: assume nothing question everything and start thinking this is the thinking atheist podcast hosted by seth andrews
3: So I'm getting into a lecture series at The Great Courses Plus. It's called Our Quantum World. It's taught by Dr. Erica Carlson over at Purdue. Quantum mechanics just fries my brain. A particle is also a wave, and it can exist in more than one place at a time. I can feel my brain melting, okay? But uh, Dr. Carlson is using everyday language and easy to understand support graphics to help teach the basics of this stuff to people like you and me. I mean, I'm two courses into it and I'm totally in because it's really well done. Also, at the Great Courses Plus, there's a course called Sci Fi, P H I, Sci Fi, Science Fiction as Philosophy. It's taught by Dr. David Johnson. The compatibility of science and religion, like it was discussed in the film Contact, which, of course, was based on Sagan's work. Doctor Who's Take on Time Travel. Gattaca and the Ethics of Reproduction, there's some Kubrick in there, Firefly, Black Mirror, even the Orville is mentioned in this course. It's amazing. And who said science isn't fun? The Great Courses Plus, a wonderful source of knowledge in just about any field, everything from Ehrman's Lectures on Christ to learning a foreign language, to lessons in self-defense taught by experts in their respective fields and streaming right to you on your schedule in streaming video or podcast format. It's a great way to support this show and learn new things because The Great Courses Plus is offering my listeners a free trial of unlimited access to their entire library. Access the offer now by signing up with my special URL. Start your free trial today. Sign up at The Great Courses greatcoursesplus.com slash Seth. That's the greatcoursesplus.com slash Seth. Going to be in Little Rock, Arkansas on Sunday, the 19th of May. Going to be at the Central Arkansas Library, and you are welcome. I want to say a huge thanks out to the Arkansas Society of Freethinkers for having me out. The details are at SethAndrews.net slash events. You've probably noticed a pattern in some of my recent releases, whether it's podcast or video. You know, I had the video profile with Andrew Torres, attorney and co host of Opening Arguments. We were talking about sort of the Trumposphere and the Constitution and the Supreme Court. We're going to get into some of that today. Uh, I had a segment on humanism versus Trump. I mean, how do good people support such an awful human being? We did that in a recent show. I've got a Sarah Levin piece coming up in the month of June. In my own life, I just find myself thinking about this more and more. It just seems so freaking critical. This tide of Christian privilege in the United States and religious privilege around the world. Now, again, as somebody who holds to the Constitution, you have the right to be a Christian. You have the right to believe in the Christian God and worship that Christian God in whatever way you see fit, as long as it does not trod on the rights of others or violate the Constitution. You know, They like to paint this as oppression. We're being oppressed, we're under attack, blah, blah, blah. It's not oppression to say that this country populated by an increasing number of non-Christians shouldn't have taxpayer dollars funding Christian privilege. I'm just irritated by it. I mean, more than usual, which is saying something. And Christianity's long said, well, it's our God on the money. It's our God in the Pledge of Allegiance. It's our God in the halls of power. And they don't even want to listen when you want to give them a lesson on history and the Constitution, you know. And where these things came from and how they weren't part of the original founding of our country. I did a video, a short-form video, runs about 10 minutes, called Is America a Christian Nation? And it answers these basic claims of the Christian theocrats who say that their specific God is the founder of the feast. And essentially, anybody who's not Christian, well, they get all the leftover scraps. Our God anointed the leaders. Our God told us we get to hang our posters and placards in public schools. The Ten Commandments front and center at the state capitol buildings and in the courthouses. You know, our taxpayer funded property supposed to represent everybody actually represents us a little extra. Yeah, it bugs me. Our God owns the holidays. Our God gets more lip service at the city council invocations. Our God gets a pass on church-state separation issues. Because, you know, we're kind of enjoying the party. We got the head seat at the table. We sort of inherited it over the generations. And if it was, say, the God of the Quran and one nation under Allah... And if we were to take our oaths upon a book other than the Bible, a religious book like the Quran or the Vedas or whatever, we'd be losing our minds and screaming about how unfair everything is and it has to be fixed. But because they're the ones who are enjoying all of this extra stuff, they're enjoying the privilege, They are suspiciously unconcerned about the shattering of the wall that separates the church and the state. That wall put in place by the founders for a reason. I'm just tired of it. I think you're tired of it. So as I sit back in my exasperation, I can sit here and just bitch and moan about it, right? Or I can engage with our generals in the field and get active myself, you know, learning what the specific battles entail and how I can be a part of positive change and greater equality, less Christian privilege in my own country. Before I speak to my featured guest, Alison Gill, here in just a second, she's an attorney and she's sort of out there fighting the good fight from a legal standpoint, a perfect tie-in to this conversation has to do with the Pledge of Allegiance and a project that Hemet Mehta a Friendly Atheist is involved with. Hemet, how you doing, brother? I'm doing well. What is this project and how can we help?
4: Sure. So the project is basically taking a deep dive into the history of the Pledge of Allegiance and all of its legal consequences and controversies, because the Pledge of Allegiance didn't just suddenly become controversial when the government stuck under God into it. And so this is a chance to go deep into Why has it been controversial for more than 100 years? How did it get written? What's the background behind all these Supreme Court cases that deal with the pledge? And really going into why it's been as controversial as it has been. And when I've been doing the research for this, I mean, we're talking about Supreme Court justices who realize they made a huge mistake. We're talking about political backstabbing over this thing. We're talking about civil rights activists who have been protesting saying the pledge for more than a hundred years for the same reasons they're protesting it now. And so for a while now, I've been researching this, this past putting together as much history, the interesting history as I could find. And I'm going to make a podcast that really goes and tells this story in depth in a way that I, I really don't get to do that on a daily basis, covering current events, So this is a chance to really get into the history of it in hopefully a not boring way.
3: (laughs) You know, it's funny, Hemet, when I was a kid, you know, we stood for the pledge hand over heart and you say the pledge. And it was only after I left religion and that sort of dogmatic model that I started to wonder, is it healthy to pledge just blind allegiance? You know, I will pledge allegiance to a nation whose boundaries are subjectively drawn by people and might be capable of great and horrible things. Shouldn't there be more yeah. nuance? Shouldn't there be more reasoning? Shouldn't there be some more independent thoughts involved in yeah. this particular act? And it's funny. I had to get out of religion before I actually had that conversation with myself, you know?
4: Yeah. And what's really funny about this is that your what you're thinking is exactly what they were thinking. Critics of the pledge were thinking a hundred years ago, and some of them were very religious who decided we don't want to say the pledge because, one, our country does a lot of horrible things, and we don't necessarily want to imply that we support it. But also, why are we saying this pledge? Doesn't it, like, uh, if there's only one person we ought to be pledging allegiance to, shouldn't it be our God? You know, and they don't want to say allegiance to the flag. But you're asking all the right questions, and here's the thing, for so many kids who say the pledge in school these days, I think you could easily walk away from school, graduate from school, and think, there was nothing. there was nothing problematic about it. I mean, yeah, I mean, we said it, we didn't really think about it, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And the thing is, if you really dig into the pledge and why it's written the way it is and why we really pressure kids to say it, it is very controversial. And the thing is, this is the one ritual that we do in schools every day that is so divisive for so many people. And the rest of the people don't even think it's a big deal. And yet this one pledge alone has been to the Supreme Court three separate times. It's been working its way to the Supreme Court many more times, just unsuccessfully. And so digging into why is that happening? Why, is, why are those, whatever, 30-some words such a problem for so long and why do we keep doing it if it's so controversial that is a fair question to ask and it's amazing how many things dealing with the first amendment and church state separation whether it's let's pressure kids to say something let's stick under god in the pledge let's imply that we're a nation that puts fake patriotism by making kids say the pledge over actual love of the country, which means criticizing it, you know, when you think it's appropriate. It it just ties into so many things. I, I know you talk about on your show dealing with the establishment clause and your guests do as well. And it's something I write about every day. And yet the pledge, which isn't even like reading the Bible in school, somehow is the intersection of all of these points of controversy and to the point where it's still is controversial today because if you say you don't want to say the pledge, you're somehow seen as unpatriotic.
3: Yeah, it was Hitchens who was talking about, I think he was speaking in the religious model, but I think it fits here. He used the words compulsory love and I think, well, that's yeah. essentially what we're <laughs> asking our, our people to do, our, especially our young people. This is compulsory love. You pledge allegiance, just wrote recitation of these words, do it every day. There's a ritual involved, yeah. and, and there's no real thoughtfulness to it.
4: There was one newspaper that after the Supreme Court said, you know what, you don't have to say it. There's no mandatory rule to say this in schools. One newspaper actually came out and said, and I'm paraphrasing here, it is better to have 99% love that is voluntarily given than 100% that we're forcing people to give it.
3: That's good. My friend, how can we help you? What's the project? And I just want to sort of send everybody your direction before I talk to my, my second guest on the show. What's up?
4: So the project is a series of episodes about a podcast. I mean, it is a podcast that digs into this entire history. It's several episodes long. I'm still in the process of writing it, so I can't tell you exactly how many episodes. But I'm doing this as professionally as I can in a recording studio with the music, with all that stuff. And so if anyone is interested in this project, getting early access to it, being listed in the credits for it, I would genuinely appreciate your help in bringing this research out there to the public. So anyone who wants to help can go to kickstarter.com, search for the Pledge of Allegiance, and you'll find... Uh, the page with this project on it. More details are on there in terms of what the project covers, and it should be up for a few more weeks before the Kickstarter ends, hopefully successfully.
3: Okay, I'll put the link in the description box. People can just go down there and click on it.
4: I would also add that this is not for atheists only. This is a project that I think, uh, I'm trying to write this and create this podcast so that anyone of any religious persuasion could hear it and really understand kind of all the sides that people have been making for and against the Pledge over the years. So uh, I think if you're interested in church-based separation, you're going to find this fascinating. And believe me, as someone who has read a lot of the histories now of the Pledge, um, I know textbooks can get a little boring in the way they go through histories you don't necessarily care about. I am doing my best to tell this story in a way that will captivate you and keep your attention the entire time.
3: As somebody who's done a lot of podcast prep, this actually sounds more like you're researching a book. So I get the meticulous nature of uh, the research and the homework. I'll link it in the description box. Let us know when it goes public. We'll do our best to support you and get you over the finish line, okay?
4: I appreciate that. Thank you to your listeners, and thank you, Seth.
3: Much of what we're talking about today has to do with church-state overreach, you know, Christian privilege, as we see one specific religion here in the United States that's just sort of bending the law to favor itself. And so I'm talking today to Allison Gill. She's an attorney and legal and policy director at American Atheist. She represents American Atheist in Washington, D.C., She trains advocates at the state and local level. She served as senior legislative counsel at the Human Rights Campaign. And she is out there on the front lines in the fight against Christian privilege here in the United States. Allison Gill, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Seth. I'm excited to be here. I just saw you recently at the American Atheist National Convention. And um, it's hard whenever we're doing these sort of day-by-day analyses of the challenges before us because there's so much to look at and it seems to change so quickly so if i may what are you working on right now what are some of the hottest things that are on your plate allison
5: sure absolutely and i agree i mean even at the conference there were several important decisions that came down from the courts while we were there but some of the things we're focused on at american atheists we're focused on issues at the state level currently There's a few different bills I'm looking at in various different states. Like, for example, there's a bill in Texas called SB17 that we're concerned about, which would create some religious exceptions in various areas that are licensed by the state. For example, tow truck drivers, teachers, anybody who's licensed by the state would be able to discriminate based on their religious beliefs. So it's a very concerning bill. And there are a number of others. We're working to stop some of those negative bills, and we're also working on positive bills, moving things forward. For example... In Nevada, we're working on a bill to end child marriage, and we're very hopeful it'll pass this year.
3: All right, hang on, Allison. Hold on just a second. In the United States, child marriage is still legal. I'm sad to
5: tell you that it actually is, yes. In most states, there's only two states currently that prohibit marriage below age 18. So uh, several states have rules around like only 16 or 17-year-olds can get married or they need parental permission, and some states have no minimum age. But there's only a couple of states currently that prohibit it you know, below 18.
3: How does this happen? Like, if, I don't know why. I thought this was like something that we see in Islamic theocracies, you know, where they're marrying off the, the 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds. And here we are in the United States, and we have to address this?
5: Yes, and it's really unfortunate. And it's sort of an archaic holdover, I think. People haven't thought about it, even though it's happened fairly frequently across the country. I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but over the past 10 years, there's been over 200,000 cases of child marriage. And it's almost always a younger girl marrying an older male.
3: I was uh, talking to Sarah Levin at the Secular Coalition for America about these adoption prohibitions that are coming down from the Trump administration, allowing essentially Christian privilege, these Christian adoption agencies or, I mean, I don't know, are they privately or publicly run or both or?
1: Sure. So
5: it's it's rather complex. There are both private and public and state-run adoption agencies. I think what we're most concerned about and what we're seeing bills to allow around the country are places where religious organizations, religious adoption and foster care placement organizations, are allowed to discriminate based on their religion while still receiving state and federal funding. So basically, they can accept funding from the public while discriminating against a portion of the public based on their beliefs. And that can be LGBT people. It can be single people. It can be people of different religions, minority religions. It can be atheists. It can be all sorts of different groups based on their religious beliefs. And sometimes it's not limited to would-be adoptive parents or foster parents. Sometimes it actually applies to the young people as well. So they'd be able to refuse services to young people in care based on their religious beliefs, which is especially insidious.
3: Yeah, I think about all of the children who are desperate for loving homes, and all of a sudden there's this sort of religious litmus test that must be passed, which is totally unconstitutional.
5: It really is unfortunate because, it, you know, all the statistics show that it decreases the number of young people able to find loving permanent homes. So it's, it's unfortunate that states would allow this discrimination. So the way it's being framed for them by the religious organizations is that by allowing them to discriminate, they are able to keep the doors open and continue to do their practices. But really what they're doing is threatening to close if not allowed to discriminate with state and federal funding. So the onus is entirely on them. And in places that have accepted, for example, same-sex marriage that they've threatened to withdraw and not offer services, they've always found workarounds, like in Washington, D.C., and Illinois. Uh, they found, you know, they opened up other adoption agencies that they found workarounds. So the entire threat is overstated, clearly.
3: Let's talk about the Supreme Court. They are going to have to decide whether or not this civil rights law that I believe uh, was written and enacted in the 1960s will apply to gay and transgender workers. Would you like to speak to that, give some detail about it?
5: Sure. So there are three cases that the Supreme Court is going to consider, and two of them relate to sexual orientation and one to gender identity. Basically, these cases and many courts uh, over the past several years have made clear that Title VII, you know, non-discrimination protections, which are discrimination protections in employment, apply to sexual orientation and gender identity based on sex. So when you discriminate against someone based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, you're really discriminating against them also based on their sex. And I can, if it's helpful to understand, basically, if a person were to be fired, a gay man, for example, based on his relationship with another man, it's based on sex because if he were a woman, he would not be discriminated against if that makes sense. So it's based on uh, his sex because of who he is choosing to see. And it's a similar sort of um, idea for gender identity. Of course, gender identity for transgender people and protections for trans people are based on perceptions of sex and basically stereotypes about what is acceptable and what's not. So there's been numerous courts at both the district and circuit level over the past several years that have said clearly uh, that these forms of discrimination are covered by federal law. Um, that's, that's a change in, in the past, it's been a little bit less clear, but there's been, you know, numerous circuit court decisions, especially in the area of gender identity. So the question is, and what the Supreme court will be looking at is whether gender identity and sexual orientation are covered under title seven of the 1964 civil rights act.
3: So we have two appointees, Trump appointees to the Supreme court, which way do you think the wind is blown on this one?
5: It really is too early to tell. Uh, it's, you know, we were hoping that the the cases would not be picked up by the Supreme Court. I think a lot of it will depend on the arguments that are made. Uh, but it is too early to tell
3: how this will work out. I guess that's kind of a loaded question. Allison Gill, please predict the future. Please prognosticate <laughs> the legal outcome. But, I mean, I understand. It's not
5: encouraging. Know. I'll say that. I'll say, it's not encouraging.
3: Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, a lot of people are discouraged about the Supreme Court. They're worried about the next, I don't know, 30 years. And Mm. so, I mean, I'll just ask you, friend to friend, activist to activist, how screwed are we?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a complicated one to answer. Um, You know, the justices on the Supreme Court are supposed to look at cases based on a certain neutral set of principles. And it's more and more unclear, especially as these conservative activist judges get nominated to the court, whether that will be the case. So it's, you know, I think that if they are able to move forward with judging based on ideology with any sort of consequence, it could it could really reshape American law over a long period of time, especially in areas like church-state separation, uh, employment law, you know, protection of individual people as opposed to corporations. These are all really important issues that the Supreme Court can significantly impact. But I do think there are ways that the Congress and future presidents can mitigate some of these concerns, potentially by changing the number of folks on the court or or using other sorts of techniques to limit the sort of ideological judges.
3: I'm a layperson, so educate me. I'm in this position where it looks like the Supreme Court is at the same time interpreting the law and making the law. How does this work? The Supreme Court is supposed to interpret the law.
5: Part of that means striking down on constitutional laws. But interpretation has changed over over time, and there's been development of the case law. For example, when it comes to the Constitution, the language itself is fairly limited, and there's been this body of interpretation over many, many, many years about what the language in the Constitution actually means. And so that's constantly evolving and being interpreted. Um, And so... Yes, the Supreme Court does interpret the law, but at the same time, it judges it against this evolving standard uh, based on the jurisprudence across the country and what's happening in various different courts.
3: So if you get activists on the Supreme Court, I mean, who are not just interpreting law, but they are activists, they have an agenda, perhaps even a religious agenda, that sort of skews the Supreme Court toward Christian privilege.
5: Absolutely. And we've definitely seen that in the last uh, couple terms where Christian beliefs are being privileged. For example, if you take a look at the Masterpiece Cake Shop case uh, of this past year versus the Trump v. Hawaii case that came out just a few weeks later. The Masterpiece Cake Shop case was, of course, a case where a gay couple was discriminated against by a baker who refused to serve them in Colorado, and the baker claimed First Amendment right uh, not to have to do so. But the court ultimately found judged on an entirely different issue. They judged saying that basically there was animus against the Baker based on their Christian beliefs because of a statement made after the fact by a a commissioner in the Civil Rights uh, Division. So that is a fairly weak assessment of what constitutes animus. I mean, the level of animus is fairly low to be entirely thrown out. And if you think about it, that leaves the couple that was discriminated against without a you know, without a solution, the previous cases that have been based on religious animus, their much much greater level of animus was required in order to basically throw out the ruling, and so this is definitely they're privileging Christian beliefs in that way. And if you compare this to Trump v. Hawaii, which was the case about the Muslim ban, where Trump has made several statements about Muslims, which are you know openly antagonistic and anti-religious and full of animus. And that was not seen by the court as being worthy of throwing out the Muslim ban. So it's it, it's it's amazing the level of how they can look at these things.
3: Well, the Hobby Lobby case, right? A great example of uh, how we are seeing Christian privilege here in the USA.
5: Absolutely. So the Hobby Lobby case is one where the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was passed back in the early 90s, was interpreted to not only cover uh, the religious beliefs of individual people, but also to protect uh, or allow religious exemptions for closely held corporations. So saying corporations have religious interests that can be protected under the law, uh, in this case, their right to not offer birth control to their employees, you know, in contravention of the law.
3: Talking here with Alison Gill, National Legal and Policy Director for American Atheists, you're also an expert on LGBTQ law. It's interesting because I've noticed even among atheists or people who are on the left, liberals, once we start to wade into the waters of transsexuality, things seem to become much more divided. And this is also the case, I think, legally. I mean, can you speak to some of this?
5: I think most people in this country believe that LGBT people, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people, are protected from discrimination in various different areas through federal law. Unfortunately, that's not clearly the case. There's no explicit law at the federal level protecting LGBTQ people. Um, However, there's about 20 states that do provide uh, protection in areas like employment for for gay and trans people. Other states do not. And so, as we talked about a few minutes ago, the federal Title VII, which is about employment discrimination, does cover, uh, it's been interpreted by many courts to include protections for, based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And so uh, there's been several circuits that have interpreted that to cover transgender people, especially. Um, So there is some level of protection. It's unclear what's going to be happening in the future as the Supreme Court considers these issues.
3: As we see, though, the uh, Trump administration, I mean, didn't he do the uh, trans ban or at least he vocalized the desire for a trans ban right off the bat as soon as he took office in, I think, 2017, right?
5: He did, and he moved forward through his uh, infamous Twitter tweet about banning trans people from the military. Unfortunately, after a period of time, the Department of Defense did move forward with that sort of implementing language to not allow people that have undergone transition in the military. And uh, there's been numerous core challenges around it. So I'm not exactly sure of the current status, but there is, I believe there's ongoing fights about whether they can just ban a whole category of people that are serving honorably.
3: I mean, you and I are talking about a culture of exclusion. We just turn around time after time, and it's like, unless you are Christian or sort of towing the Christian party line, there's a fair chance that, you know, you're going to be given little more than lip service, and you might be deemed non-patriotic
5: I agree. And it's it's interesting. We're seeing an entire wave of Christian nationalist sort of activity in the states as well. There is a legislative campaign we've been following very closely called Project Blitz in the state, which sort of works to amplify Christian nationalist ideas and undermine the separation of religion and governments, LGBT equality and reproductive access. Their goal of this campaign is to introduce as many state bills as possible in states all across the country to sort of flood the sphere with their bills. And just to give you an example of what these bills look like, um, they're introducing bills to put giant In God We Trust posters in schools so that every day, every uh, child in every classroom has to look at a giant poster saying, In God We Trust. And especially for religious minorities and atheists, this lets them know that they're really not welcome there.
3: It's funny. I was at the uh, Bentonville school city council. I was at the board rather uh, the uh, school board giving a three minute statement along with Nick fish, the president of American atheist and several other people. We were talking about their in God, we trust signs which are displayed in their schools and how exclusive it is. The idea is, is that if you are, Not a Christian. You don't hold to the Christian God. You are in some way excluded. Socially, you are excluded in terms of your value. So, I mean, imagine students who are not Christians seeing these signs every single day. The message is really overt. You don't quite belong, right? Absolutely.
5: Absolutely. And you can imagine how this can lead to bullying and harassment and exclusion for these, these kids in these in these places. We've just received a ton of complaints on this from the various states that have implemented these bills. And, you know, the Christian nationalists are really pushing on these bills. Last year, I think we saw about 26 of these bills introduced in states around the country and about six passed. And this year, uh, I believe it's about 24. And I think, I think three have passed so far. So it's an issue that they're really pushing on in the states, and we're working actively to stop Project Blitz and prevent these bills from passing. Another resource to highlight
3: on this is the Blitzwatch website, which we run, which is blitzwatch.org. Are there any critical legal arguments, cases, things that are happening right now that we as activists need to be aware of?
5: Well, we have a very interesting case in Arkansas that we are uh, moving forward with. This is a case against uh, State Senator Jason Rapert, who has... Pretty, he's been pretty infamous for excluding atheists and people who disagree with him uh, based on religion or other issues that he's concerned about from his official Facebook and Twitter accounts. So, our argument, and I think this has been backed up by the courts, is that these accounts that he runs are public forums because he's running them as a state senator. He's basically holding them out to speak with his constituents to ask his constituents questions, to have public discussion about the issues of the day that are important in his area and to his areas of concern. And therefore they can't exclude people based on their statements or beliefs. That's called viewpoint discrimination and the Supreme Court has forbidden that under the 1st Amendment. It's an attack on the freedom of speech. And Jason Rapert is uh, pretty infamous for especially, you know, not allowing atheists to speak. Several of our complainants are atheists who live in his district or just outside it and they were banned by him for making innocuous statements that are in disagreement with him.
3: I love looking at uh, Jason Rapert's expressions when the Satanic Temple tries to get the Baphomet statue as part of a religious freedom exercise, essentially sticking his privilege back in his face. I mean, he just loses his mind over it, and it's awesome.
5: Yeah, I agree. He's uh, has several videos about how we are attacking him and silencing him by trying to prevent him from silencing others. It's uh, pretty fascinating. (laughs) He's persecuted,
3: right? I'm so persecuted. Uh, So, I mean, what is it? What's the end game in Arkansas? You simply want a seat at the table for atheists?
5: Well, especially, we spoke about how the courts are becoming more challenging, especially around establishment clause issues, but I think there are other avenues whereby we can protect the rights of atheists. And, you know, one of those things is we as atheists have to be able to speak in the public sphere. I was concerned after the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that, you know, this small degree of, you know, statement against Christianity is considered religious animus, And if that's the case, you know, it's concerning that anything that officials say that is anti, you know, that might be perceived as anti-Christian in some way would result in some finding of animus. But, you know, we have to be able to speak in the public sphere as atheists or we've already lost. And I think that this case is about defending those rights and uh, making sure that we can continue to have a voice.
3: Allison, have uh, you done any, I know that American Atheist has addressed it in the past, I think even attempted a a lawsuit regarding the double standard on 501c3 organizations where pastor exemptions and these church exemptions, they don't have to fill out the same paperwork as other nonprofits or charity organizations. Uh, Have you gotten into that at all? And can you speak to the double standard, how Christian organizations or religious organizations don't really have to have the level of accountability as everybody else applying for nonprofit?
5: Sure, that's right. Basically, the, the tax rules... Say that a, a religious organization or a place of worship can be considered a nonprofit even without filing, like other secular nonprofits have to file and be accepted as a nonprofit to get tax exemption. And so they have this special exception that allows them to avoid the paperwork. And then even after that, they don't have to file on an annual basis. Even small nonprofits, like if you earn, I don't know, $200 a year. You have to file a, a very, very simple postcard with the IRS showing that this is, you know, the level of money you earn, and therefore you don't have to file something more complex. Organizations that earn more than $50,000 a year have to file much more complex tax return well, I guess it's not tax return, but a more complex statement with the IRS talking about their finances and how they're behaving appropriately. But religious organizations and places of worship are exempt from these requirements. And so it's a real double standard, unfortunately. Now, we have, American Atheist has in the past attempted to challenge this issue. It's been complex because of a, some standing issues. Um, which I won't go into because it's needlessly complicated. However, we do not currently have a case on this issue. It's something we're exploring. I do know that the Freedom from Religion Foundation is actively trying to move forward with litigation on this subject.
3: You and I could just start a church. I mean, you and me, we just, you know, the church of Allison Gill. Gill. Right? You can be the pope, and we can just file, and then we get special treatment, and we can write off our homes and all these other things yeah. as parsonage exemptions. I mean, it sounds Sounds pretty good. I mean, I'm just saying.
5: I've actually joked, um, you know, that as a, a trans woman, I could start the first national church of transness and <laughs> I'd have the right to <laughs> wear appropriate clothing in the workplace. I'd have the right to take off days for religious sacraments. Maybe that includes surgery. I'd have the right to, you know, get tax exemptions. There's, there's, I have a whole plethora of rights that people currently don't have uh, who are trans, including non-discrimination protections, which is frankly ridiculous.
3: Are you OK with speaking Personally, about a little bit of your own journey, as we sort of uh, and here in the last part of the conversation, I really want to find out what drives you. Uh, have you experienced religious discrimination, other types of discrimination in your own life, and does that drive your work today?
5: It does. I mean, I have, yes, and I think it does. I guess it's kind of a minor episode, but when I was young, I went to a magnet school in New Jersey. It's where I grew up, and it was about maybe an hour and a half outside of my town, so. I didn't have a lot of local friends, and I've been a giant gamer all my life. I'm still a, a giant gamer into Dungeons and & Dragons and all sorts of different online games. And, you know, there was a gaming club formed at my local high school. I was excited to join after school, so I get to meet some local people who actually lived in my town <laughs> and make some friends. And this is back in the, um, I guess it was in the early 90s. I guess during when there was more of a satanic panic type of issue. It's basically the local chapter of the Federation of Christian Athletes protested at the formation of a gaming club where we could have done Dungeons and Dragons in my high school. Um, and so I wasn't able to meet local people and, you know, form some bonds of friendship. And I found it really unfortunate. Well, that was the first time I really had this sort of Christian privilege impact my life growing up in fairly secular New Jersey.
3: Yeah, it's a culture of exclusion, right? If you're not in the in group, if you don't conform to our cookie cutter, then we cast you off or lock you out. And I don't think that's what, beyond the United States, beyond what's happening legally, I don't think that's what human beings should do to each other.
5: Yeah, I agree. And more recently, when I began to transition and come out as trans, I was um, sort of like go from a position as an attorney in Maryland. Maryland at the time did not have non-discrimination protections, and it's, you know, it can be rather challenging to fight back against those sorts of things, so that experience of discrimination made it very difficult for me to sort of maintain, be in that area of the law. I'd previously done intellectual property and patent law. And it really shifted my career to be more about civil rights, which is great because I get to uh, work on these issues with you.
3: Yeah, it was a shitty thing for them to do, but I'm glad it sort of opened these other doors because I'm really glad you're on our team. <laughs> because, you know, you do great work, Allison, and you are so freaking smart. It's, it's funny, I just recently, as we were talking at the convention, I thought, okay, this is someone who has, uh, your education is like uh, in biology, right?
5: That's right. I have a degree in biochemistry and microbiology from Rutgers.
3: Okay. Before you went to law school, you got a degree in molecular biology and biochemistry. So are you just that analytical? Are you you wired for this stuff? Because I'm completely intimidated.
5: I I don't know. I guess I just enjoyed sciences. Um, That's why I went to the field. I originally intended to go to uh, graduate school. But I found, you know, after being in the lab for four years, I just wasn't quite that introverted. <laughs> and I couldn't spend all my time around ye. So, so I went to law school instead. But said, if you're
3: this meticulous a thinker, I'm not sure I want to play D&D with you. I think you'd probably just hose me. So <laughs> so is, do you still game? Even I mean, we all have our bubble gum for the brain, right? Do you still, from time to time, get to go? And- I do. I game probably too much. <laughs> I
5: run two Dungeons and Dragon's games, and I'm playing in two others. And I also am a big online gamer, mostly Final
3: Fantasy XIV. Okay. All right. Final Fan. All right. Hang on. I'm making notes. Now, is this all the stuff that if any newbie like myself jumps in, I'm hosed and I'll have a terrible time. Is there any hope for someone like me or would you recommend something that's more of an introduction to gaming?
5: I think it's fairly easy to pick up Dungeons & Dragons uh, if you have a good dungeon master who can sort of guide you through it.
3: It's all about sort of playing pretend and going with the flow and ad-libbing. So I actually think you'd be really good at it and find it interesting. I'm going to call my wife, honey, I need a new dungeon master. Out of context, that's just an odd conversation, by the way. Alison Gill, is there anything that we can do to help you in your efforts or help the effort in general? Trying to remove Christian privilege, trying to create a more humanistic United States. What can we do? How can we get active
5: well, we are involved in fighting for positive legislation and against negative state legislation all around the country. And you can you can go to ACS.org and sign up for alerts. And when we find out about bills moving forward in your area, it's very straightforward. We have a great system to take action and inform your lawmakers about how to, you know, send an email supporting a bill or opposing negative legislation. Um, so I really strongly encourage you to do that. It's very easy and it's a great
3: way to make your voice heard. Thank you so much for your wonderful work. Thanks for talking to me here on the show. And uh, we'll continue to follow your efforts and the efforts of American Atheist and activist organizations like AA out there. And uh, we'll keep our eyes as well on the Supreme Court in the days, weeks, and months ahead as we see so many things changing. Uh, You are greatly appreciated, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, sir.
2: Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to Atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com.